Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today we are going to discuss the very important issue of school safety. Columbine, a word that will live in infamy in American hearts and minds. Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, and an apparent weekly school shooting this past school year. What is being done to stop this? What can be done to stop this? My two expert guests today will shed some light on this very dark topic. My first guest, Dr. Ronald D. Stevens, was named Executive Director of the National School Safety Center in 1985. In this capacity, Dr. Stevens has served as consultant and frequent speaker for school districts, law enforcement agencies, and professional organizations worldwide. He serves as Executive Editor of the School Safety News Service, America's leading school crime prevention newsletter. Dr. Stevens, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate you coming on. Uh, Dr. Stevens, what is the School Safety News Service? Well, the uh, School Safety News Service, uh, we published that for about 15 years running. Uh, we now have all the articles uh, archived on our website. But we would focus on uh, various issues related to uh, school safety, to safe school planning, uh, dealing with bully prevention, gang prevention, uh, appropriate information sharing, and topics of that nature. Now, now were these topics geared toward school administrators and teachers, or was it for community members? Who exactly was the newsletter for? Uh, the newsletter was really targeted uh, to uh, principals and administrators in the nation's uh, 100 and, you know, roughly uh, 20 to 30,000 schools. It also went to all elected and appointed chiefs of police, all juvenile and family court judges, probation, parole. And uh, our whole approach was we we felt like if we were going to make a difference in school safety, we really needed to focus uh, on a partnership basis and, and bring in not only the school officials, but the mental health uh, professionals, law enforcers, and other individuals who support the safety and well-being of children. Okay. Now, I would imagine that, that your, your phone rings often after tragedies such as Sandy Hook. What do callers want most when they call you? For the most part, uh, after an incident like a Sandy Hook or a Columbine, uh, it serves as a riveting reminder that uh, schools uh, really need to take a look at their overall safe school plan. And so what what is happening, uh, sometimes it's the school administrators who are calling themselves uh, just to uh, uh, ask, hey, what can we do to make a difference? In other cases, uh, you have a number of uh, parents uh, and students, uh, particularly parents, though, asking the local school administrator, uh, what are you doing differently now that you weren't doing before, and how do I know my child is going to be safe at school? Uh, so those are, those are some of the uh, you know, basic areas that get a lot of attention after a crisis. 
Okay. Now you've been all over the country and 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 other countries as well. Um, how often do you get to actually engage with with the students directly? Uh, with the students directly, we will have uh, opportunities uh, throughout the year. Uh, generally, with students, uh, the topics that we address most would uh, be looking at things like uh, bully prevention um, and uh, issues of uh, conflict management, those those types of things. But most of the work that we do is with the youth-serving professionals, with um, educators, um, law enforcers, and the like. Okay. And what should be included in the training of the teachers and administrators? Well, first, for uh, teachers and administrators, um, it's important, number one, to place school safety on the education agenda. And uh, whenever we go in and take a look at a school, uh, we will ask to uh, review their school safety plan, see if they, in fact, have one. Uh, do they have a crisis plan? Uh, how do they supervise students during the day, and this includes supervision before school, after school, during school, um, and then uh, particularly when it comes to uh, dealing with things like uh, bully prevention and conflict resolution, uh, there's been some interesting sidebar experiences that have come, and we've discovered that uh, once um, a lot of work is done on uh, talking about conflict resolution, peer mediation, and bully prevention. Uh, we find that staff members, uh, as they attempt to teach in these areas, they become more cognizant of uh, things that they may be doing or that they may not be doing that uh, often will cause uh, crime and violence to be perpetuated a bit more. And so um, in the process of... Uh, training uh, children, the staff, um, uh, get some training as well. Excellent. Uh, are you familiar with New York State's new DASA legislation or um, DASA legislation? Not, uh, not directly with what they've done in New York, but I will tell you New York was one of the first states, and we had worked with Governor Pataki some years ago to focus on uh, safe school planning up there. But uh, uh, as far as their new strategy, um, uh, if you have a specific question about that, I'll try to address it, but uh, I'm not sure of that acronym that you've just utilized. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, um, I, I bring it up, and now I have to, you know, <laughs> scramble for the flyer uh, to share it with you, but I'll share that a little bit later on if we have more time. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what, in, in addition to schools having many fire drills, what other types of drills should they, they be conducting? Well, you know, as you look at what's happening to schools through the years, uh, you know, we've transitioned from fist fights to gunfights, and now we've uh, moved from, um, you know, fire drills to crisis drills. And so when you look at the kinds of drills to be conducted, uh, certainly the uh, the fire drill is, is kind of the basic, but, if you have some states, for instance, like Connecticut, they require that, uh, and New Jersey, I believe, uh, they require uh, specific types of drills uh, that would be categorized, number one, maybe in an area of a natural disaster drill. Another one might be uh, a shooter on the campus, um, so a shooting drill, uh, so to speak. Uh, and so they are 
now infusing those types of crisis uh, planning and strategizing uh, within the context of their uh, uh, their overall safety plan. Now, now, Dr. Stevens, as as this becomes more of a priority, I, I think with each shooting, it, be, it, it you know the the, the talk shows uh, you know put it front and center. As this becomes more of a priority, are you finding more cohesion in school safety plans? For example, um, let's say 15 years ago, um, one school might have shelter-in-place drills where another school may not. You know, are you finding more cohesion where more and more schools are doing similar drills? Yes, we are finding that uh, a bit more, but there's still a, a good ways to go because uh, clearly in the midst of a crisis, there are a variety of options from you know, the lockdown, the shelter in place to uh, evacuation and uh, even having a backup plan to your evacuation. And, you know, so often uh, I get the question, well, what should we do in a crisis? And uh, the advice that I give to uh, educators is that uh, it's going to depend on what is unfolding at the time. For instance, um, when the uh, shooting uh, took place uh, in Red Lake, Minnesota, um, when the shooter came onto the campus, the first thing they did was go into lockdown. And that, of course, makes sense. Uh, but then as they were in lockdown, the shooter was going from room to room, using mm. his gun to actually blow out the hardware on the door, enter the room, and then begin shooting students. And uh, so one of the administrators at that, or teachers at that time had the good judgment of just realizing, because communication really wasn't out and available, uh, the teacher says, hey, uh, you know, lockdown isn't working for us. And so as they had their first opportunity, uh, they went into an evacuation evacuation mode. And um, I wish so much I uh, would have the videotapes of this happening because when that incident occurred, they had everything on videotape from the time that uh, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Weiss uh, came into the school, began shooting it up to when the evacuation took place. So my point is that uh, when you look at your crisis plan, it needs to be one that is flexible, that gives you some alternatives. Um, and really, at the end of the day, a lot of what we do is about common sense and good judgment. And oftentimes, these are on-the-spot decisions that have to be made by school administrators and teachers when they're in the midst of the crisis. So then, then their plans, in essence, should be flexible that, you know, have plans but be flexible within those plans. Would you agree? Well, they absolutely should have a degree of flexibility. I thought one um, particular uh, military general um, uh, put it very well. We had, had brought together a group of um, experts from all over the country after the shooting, uh, well, not the shooting, but the uh, uh, 9-11 uh, plane um, crashes in New York at the World Trade Center, and we were all grappling with, okay, what kind of crisis plan have we ever seen where somebody was uh, omniscient enough and could think through uh, the predictive powers of uh, what a terrorist might do to plan for uh, an aircraft going into a large building? And... Uh, you know, and so anyway, you start looking at your crisis plans, and, and the general made such a great uh, observation. He says, you know, 
in the midst of a battle in my 31 years of military experience, I've never seen anyone reach for the plan. Uh, and his point was that as we look at our training, uh, these crisis drills, I know you just brought it up as rather a just basic kind of question, but sometimes focusing on these basic issues that uh, almost restate the obvious of what we need to think about in the midst of a crisis really go a long way towards uh, our planning and preparation uh, because uh, it's just in- incredibly difficult to uh, have a strategy or plan for everything. Uh, you've got to have uh, that degree of flexibility, and and also you want to really have your staff well trained and well prepared. Excellent. In fact, when you when you brought up the uh, general's comment, I remember hearing once that they were trying to, after 9/11, come up with a plan to a cohesive plan to get all of the planes out of the air in the event of something like that happening again. And somebody said, "Hold it a minute. We didn't have a plan." Before 9-11, yet we were able to get all of the planes out of the air. So um, it's, it's kind of what the general is saying that, you know, no one's reaching for a plan, but common sense um, seems to have ruled the day um, on 9-11. And maybe having something written might make it more confusing um, when common sense had already won out. Um, but, Dr. Stevens, at this time, we're going to take a short break. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our distinguished guest, Dr. Ronald Stevens from the National School Safety Center. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. Uh, Dr. Stevens, when I had a, a brain freeze uh, in the first half of our interview, um, when I mentioned DASA, it actually stands for the Dignity for All Students Act, and it was passed as law in New York State, and it, it really was put in place to address bullying in, in all of its facets uh, within a school system. And that leads me to my next question, and, and that is, uh, what steps might a school take to better identify and engage students who are out on the fringes? Well, first of all, it's important for uh, school districts to have uh, some type of uh, bully prevention policy or strategy that will uh, provide for the safety and well-being of students. Uh, and uh, as much as anything else, I thought one, one student put it in pretty good perspective uh, when we were doing a training film on bully prevention. And the student made a comment to the uh, principal uh, saying that, it's been a long time since you've been a kid, hasn't it, Mr. Preston? And uh, sometimes we need to think about uh, what it is like to be uh, a child uh, in the school, uh, particularly uh, in the younger years. We know that there's twice the bullying that goes on in grades 2 through 6 as there is in grades 7 through 8. Uh, and yet this bullying uh, certainly permeates uh, the high school level and now is cyberbullying. Uh, when you can put something in writing and disseminate it all over uh, the world, uh, it becomes uh, even much more caustic. And so, uh, first of all, uh, teachers and staff need to understand the uh, scope of bullying uh, 
and uh, it's important to uh, have clear behavior standards that uh, disallow it. But then secondly, it's important to have uh, a system to provide support and protection uh, for these students. And when I say these students, it can cut across all cultural and ethnic um, boundaries. Um, uh, oftentimes, um, students who've recently immigrated to the United States uh, have uh, some real issues. Uh, sometimes it's those who've been here a long time. And then when you look at um, people from various cultural backgrounds, uh, different beliefs with regard to uh, um, race, religion, uh, sexual orientation, um, all of these are, are factors that really need to be carefully considered. Now, are, are you a proponent of having... Um, I would say Las Vegas-like or airport-like uh, video surveillance system in all schools. I'm uh, I'm smiling a little bit as we say this uh, because I'm very familiar with what it's like uh, in uh, Clark County, Las Vegas. Uh, uh, they went to the casinos to help them design one of the most sophisticated systems around, and they have the best of technology with pan tilt and zoom lens capability. Um, this is a this is an interesting situation. Uh, for me, I transitioned from a time when we didn't uh, videotape everything, uh, uh, and in, in a number of ways, it, it does begin to uh, limit our privacy issues. But I will tell you that most of the school administrators uh, with whom I have worked, uh, they've come to realize that the uh, camera. Uh, surveillance or camera supervision does help them uh, in resolving uh, a number of issues that are in place. But uh, once again, when it comes to cameras, these are decisions that need to be made uh, at the local school district level. It's important to let um, students know that this is being done. It's important to let parents know why you're doing it. And, uh, you know, if it's done within the context of um, you know, trying to provide safety and security for students, uh, I think that is the high road because there's always that fine line between campus uh, supervision and sometimes what they call campus snoopervision. In the way you uh -huh. market it, the way you use it, the way you apply it, uh, ends up uh, having a, a very significant uh, influence at the end of the day on uh, uh, how those strategies are embraced by your students, by your community, uh, and by the faculty. Okay. Now, um, I've been in uh, a few different, you know, school, quite a few school buildings, but um, sometimes my sense of safety is reduced when the level of security in a particular school is increased. For example, um, if I walk into a school and I have to go through a metal detector and every door that you open for the outside has an alarm on it, um, I tend to feel less safe than if I went into a similar-sized school where you're welcome at the front door. Um, there may be cameras, but they're not obsessed. You know, they're not everywhere. Um, you don't you don't have to go through the metal detector. Um, you know, there's not necessarily a uniform security guard, but maybe you know, t-shirt is security guards. It, does that make sense that um, I would feel less secure in a building that has higher security? That's a very interesting observation that you've made, and um, what I would say is that um, 
Well, it's interesting. There was a study that was done, one of the classic ones on school safety, and it talked about all the high-tech equipment, metal scanners, uh, camera surveillance, uh, you name it. And despite all of those features, uh, the single most effective strategy for keeping schools safe was the physical presence of a responsible adult in the immediate vicinity. And I think as we take a look at school safety, every community has to ask the question, what kind of climate do we want to create? Because if you build a security system that makes everybody feel as though they're a criminal and they're uh, guilty until proven innocent, um, I'm just not so convinced that that creates the best kind of educational climate. Uh, my take is um, I would much rather see a principal or a teacher uh, greeting students at the door when they come to school, uh, running somebody uh, through uh, all of the screening and scanning and uh, background checking and uh, everything else that uh, we experience when we go to an airport. So uh -huh. once again, um, whenever you look at education, it's been defined or described as a federal concern, a state function, a local responsibility. And the local community is the one that has the greatest latitude to determine how do we want our educational atmosphere to look, what steps will we take to uh, foster uh, a spirit of safety and welcomeness, and um, how do we intend to operate. So uh, uh, in many ways, uh, it is a wonderful thing that for the most part, uh, those decisions and choices are still left at the local community level. Yeah, and, and I understand, and it's a fine line because on a on a converse, I I would feel less safe at a airport if I can just walk right onto the plane, you know. So, in in the airport, of course, I want the most stringent security, but when I walk into a school, I want to feel a sense of uh, community as opposed to a sense of uh, institution, you know. So, um, it's a like you said, it's a very fine line, and it's up to the different communities. Um, but I just find every time there's a shooting. Uh, they find another hole, you know, like we had, had this in place, but we didn't consider, you know, why. And, uh, and now I know that there's a movement in, in, uh, at least in, in the area I live in, in Long Island to have, um, they, they train all schools pretty similarly and they, they want to connect everyone to a, a video surveillance system so that the police can actually look into your school in the event of a, uh, a 911 call so that they can go directly to the, the, the issue. And that, that sounds like a great idea in response to the Columbines and Sandy Hooks. Um, and they have the active shooter scenario where they, um, they're no longer going to wait outside and, 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 and uh, hope things settle down and bring in a negotiator. They're going in and they're, going in with, you know, with their eyes open because of the fact that they're trying to unite everyone's video system uh, to the local police. So there's this technology that I, I believe is positive. Yes, uh, but, you're but there's right. still that fine line. If we can mask it but still have it present. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Uh, you, you make a very good point, and uh, particularly when law enforcement is in fresh pursuit, uh, and if the school district does have the video surveillance capability, it makes a lot of sense to provide that kind of access. And uh, one of the things that we have encouraged schools to do all over the country is uh, in looking at their crisis response to develop uh, mutual aid agreements uh, with the various first responders, including law enforcement, including uh, fire, 
uh, emergency medical personnel and the extent to which they can coordinate these together, uh, so much the better. Because uh, you may recall at Columbine, uh, after that event, there were nine different SWAT teams that responded to uh, the uh, Columbine High School, but they were all operating on a different radio frequency. There was no, mm. incident, no incident command coordination at all. And uh, one of the great lessons that came out of Columbine was the need to have a good incident command system to uh, have the drills in advance because at, at Columbine, a lot of these response agencies were meeting each other for the first time. Uh, but now part of the uh, crisis drill and the crisis planning should involve not only students, uh, teachers, uh, and administrators, but it needs to involve all of the uh, first responders that might uh, be in the local area. So uh, uh, there are some good uh, lessons and strategies that clearly we've been able to learn from these crises. Uh, probably most of them are focused on crisis response. Mm -hmm. And if we can ever focus on the crisis prevention a bit more and look at our threat assessment protocols and identify potential problems early on, uh, we will have done a good day's work to keep all of our schools safer for America's children. Excellent. I think that's an, an excellent uh, place to stop as well. Uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Ronald Stevens, Executive Director of the National School Safety Center. To learn more about Dr. Stevens and the work of the National School Safety Center, visit www.schoolsafety.us. That's schoolsafety.us. Dr. Stevens, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Stay tuned because our next guest is a police chief who is leading the way with school safety via technology. 